Hi, I'm Yusuf Zin. My latest TVO Today podcast is on how a Canadian ends up in a Chinese prison, and if he's even alive. Listen and subscribe to Extradition. Available now, wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome, everyone, to the On Poly Podcast. I'm Steve Pagan. And I'm John Michael McGrath. Today on the pod, Ontario Liberals gather in Hamilton, ostensibly to show the province they're relevant again. Independent MPP Bobby Ann Brady joins us to walk us through her private member's bill to protect farmland. And Ontario and Quebec are putting a call out for project proposals to help strengthen their ties through language. It's March 7th, 2023, so let's get to it. Hey, partner, how's the kid doing? Uh, they're good. Uh, our listeners uh, may or may not know uh, my uh, child fell from a slide uh, at school and uh, broke their arm. So uh, last week was a bit uh, COVID-y, actually. <laughs> Everybody <laughs> trapped back at the house. Uh, but the kid is uh, back in school this week and uh, bragging to all of their friends about the ordeal they've survived. <laughs> the good news is uh, young bones heal very easily and quickly. As you will discover. Uh, already seeing the uh, change in mood and how quickly this has gone from the worst thing ever to ever happen to anybody in human history to <laughs> eh, just another thing. Good, good. That's a good sign. Well, a few weeks ago, we spent considerable time talking about the New Democrats because they just held their convention, endorsing the selection of their only leadership candidate, Marit Stiles. This week, it is the Liberals' turn in the spotlight because they've just completed their annual general meeting. So let's get right to issue one and hit on the big news to emerge from that get-together. The key decision Liberals had to make was what kind of leadership process they wanted to have going forward. They have been, of course, one of the last political parties in the country to choose their leaders via the old-fashioned delegated convention. But changing that process has been tough because the Liberal Constitution required a supermajority of two-thirds support to change the system, not just a simple majority, but a supermajority. Well, they got that this time. JMM, give us the deets. Right. This was a debate that we saw uh, also unfold in 2019, where uh, the party did not get the supermajority uh, for change. They, they had a, a majority, but not quite two-thirds. Uh, and so now they are adopting, or, or rather we should say have adopted, uh, a weighted one-member, one-vote system. Uh, this is not a pure one-member, one-vote system. It's not a pure proportional representation or anything like that. It is very much like the system that the progressive conservatives uh, use. Basically, uh, every riding in Ontario with a, a liberal uh, riding association will be awarded 100 points. Those 100 points in each of those ridings are then allocated on the basis of the percentage of votes each candidate gets. So if there are 100 members and candidate A gets 50 votes, then they will receive 50 points because they got half of the votes. If there are 1,000 members and candidate A gets 500 votes, that's half the votes. So they will still just get the 50 points. Uh, the winner is the candidate who wins 50% plus one of the total points available, not the votes of members, but the points available. Right. Now, there's also a little wrinkle that the Liberals have added, which is youth organizations will get 50 points to distribute to the candidates as well. And at the moment, there are nine Liberal youth organizations around Ontario, so that is another 450 points up for grabs, right? Nine times 50. That's a different wrinkle from what other parties offer, but it's something the Liberals have included. 
Yes, and it also means we can't tell you exactly how many points each candidate will need to win because we don't know the total number of points that will be up for grabs、uh, during the next leadership race.、Uh, follow along here, if if I can indulge you. There's going to be math here, isn't there? There is going to be math. <laughs> <laughs> that that Cohen Brothers film. There will be math. <laughs>、uh, there are 124 ridings at 100 points per riding. That is 12,400 points available. 50% plus one would be 6,201 points for victory. But because there will be 50 points available for every Young Ontario Student Club, we can't say for sure that 6,201 points is enough to win. Because theoretically,、uh, there are maybe not infinite, but many different numbers of youth clubs that could be created and thus. Change the vote tally. Right, so we won't know till the convention what the total points available are, and therefore what the fifty percent plus one is necessary for victory. Now, there are a few things about this system that are really quite controversial. So let's get into that now. Let's stay with the youth organizations. This potentially, I'm not accusing anybody of anything, but potentially this could be rife for abuse. If I'm an organizer for candidate A, let's say. What's stopping me from going to every post-secondary campus in the province, signing up five students, then calling them the Algoma Liberal Youth or the George Brown Liberal Youth or University of Windsor Liberal Youth? Those five students would be worth 50 points. So yes, there is ample incentive to organize the youth vote here, and also ample opportunity to abuse a well-intentioned system here. Uh, and what's the other concern? I'm glad you asked. The good thing about this system is that it does not allow the urban ridings, with presumably lots of liberal members, to overwhelm the rural ridings, which presumably have many fewer members. Because every riding, regardless of how many members there are, is worth a hundred points. Okay, great. The downside of that is that it's theoretically possible that let's do this again. Candidate A could get more votes and win more ridings than candidate B. But candidate B could win the leadership, because at the end of the day, it's not about votes. Remember, it's about points, and this isn't theoretical. Actually, in the 2018 PC leadership contest, Christine Elliott won more votes and more ridings than Doug Ford, but Ford won because he scored more points. Now let's maybe take a sec just to explain to people how that's possible, because that doesn't sound like it ought to happen, but it did. And obviously, could again. Well, the reason we're bringing this up is because there were skeptics of the one-member, one-vote system within the Liberal Party who used exactly this example、uh, for why they should be careful about adopting this system.、Uh, but it's possible because it's not just about votes; it is about where the votes are. So, if Candidate A gets、uh, 1,000 out of 2,000 possible votes in、uh, a, a downtown dense riding like Toronto-St. Paul's. That is half the votes, and therefore half the points. So 50 points to candidate A. But if candidate B gets、uh, 51 out of 100 votes in Nipissing, that's 51% of the votes, and therefore 51 points. So what it means, though, is that even though candidate A has a vote lead of 1,000 actual Liberal members to 51 Liberal members. Candidate B actually has the points lead overall, 51 to 50. Now you play that same scenario out over 124 ridings, and you can see how you would win more votes 
and more ridings and still lose the contest. Bingo. Now, let's state right here, no system is perfect for picking a leader. They all have their strengths and weaknesses. This system is good in that it doesn't allow the urban ridings to overwhelm the rural ridings, and it gives every voter a direct say in the outcome because you're not electing delegates to go to a convention and vote on your behalf. You're actually voting directly for the leadership candidate of your choice, so that's all good. But it absolutely encourages candidates to spend more time in so-called rotten boroughs, where there is barely any liberal support at all, because as we've shown, 50 votes in left overshoe Ontario can be worth as many points as 2,000 votes in midtown Toronto. So, you know, in a way, it's pick your poison. The next question, of course, is when will this leadership convention be held? And that decision is up to the party's new executive committee, which was just installed this past weekend as well. So, JMM, give us an update on that. The name Catherine McGarry will mean something to some of our listeners. Uh, She was in Kathleen Wynne's cabinet and is a former mayor of Cambridge, Ontario. Uh, She won the party presidency, and now she and the new executive must decide when to hold this leadership convention. Right, and the timing of the next convention is crucial because depending on when that convention happens, it could determine who will participate. For example, the three main contenders that we've heard a lot about so far, Nate Erskine-Smith, Yasser Nakvi, and Ted Shu, have already been busily traveling the province and trying to line up support, so they obviously like the convention to happen sooner, because they've had a big head start. However, that would not be advantageous to other potential candidates, such as two of the Don Valley MPPs, Stephanie Bowman from West, Adil Shamji from East, or for that matter, Mississauga Mayor Bonnie Crombie, all of whom would need presumably more time to create their organizations. So the question of timing is really very important. And and beyond the issue of what is advantageous to any particular candidate, the party also has to decide what is best for the party. Uh, They would like a leadership race that maximizes the number of people calling themselves liberals and prepared to vote liberal in the next election. And that might not be the same thing that is most beneficial for Nader Smith or Yasser Nakvi or any of the other candidates. Uh, It is very interesting that Crombie had a hospitality suite at the AGM this weekend in Hamilton. Uh, Usually that is what confirmed candidates do, and she is not yet a confirmed candidate. Uh, In fact, she is trying very hard not to answer the question of whether she is interested. She keeps telling any reporters who ask that she's got a big job as Mississauga's mayor. And then when reporters ask the obvious next question, are you saying definitely you won't run? She does not actually definitively say that. I had to laugh a bit when uh, Crombie told reporters last week that she was simply attending the AGM to educate MPPs about the negative impacts of the government's policies on municipal budgets. I mean, it it could be true, (laughs) but you don't need to go to the AGM to reach a party with eight MPPs to make a difference in provincial policy. (laughs) Well, I have maintained for some time that Crombie and Christia Freeland, uh, the Deputy Prime Minister, are the most popular, best-known liberals in the entire province of Ontario and would likely be able to mount very strong bids for the leadership should they want to. Now, given that Freeland has shown absolutely no interest in the job at all, that means all eyes are turning to Crombie for the will-she-or-won't-she question. So, yes, everyone stay tuned. Uh, One other note, we've already mentioned his name, but uh, on Monday, Don Valley East MPP uh, Dr. Adil Shamji announced he is officially exploring a leadership bid. Uh, If our listeners want to get acquainted with him, uh, and they haven't yet, they can, of course, listen to our podcast from just a few weeks back, uh, where 
where we had him on to discuss provincial health care policy. Mm-hmm. And you know what? Just one other little trip down memory lane here. I remember talking to the former leader, Stephen Del Duca, after the last election, in which he was defeated, obviously, and resigned his um, role as liberal leader. I said, who of the eight people who won could be the leader in the current caucus? Who could be the leader that maybe we wouldn't necessarily think of? And he said, Adil Shamji. He said he's a guy to watch. Uh, so we will. Okay, on to issue two. While Queen's Park has seen its share of independent MPPs over the years, they're usually people who were first elected under another party's banner before falling out with the leader. That happened several times in the last legislature. But in 2022, something very rare happened. An MPP was elected as an independent in her own right. The voters of Haldeman Norfolk sent Bobby Ann Brady to represent them at Queen's Park, after Toby Barrett had held the riding for the Tories since 1995. MPP Brady joins us on the podcast today to discuss the private member's bill she's presenting this week, as well as her time at Queen's Park so far. MPP Bobby Ann Brady, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me. So tell us a bit about Bill 62, the Farmland and Arable Land Strategy Act. Well, it's near and dear to my heart because I campaigned very much on on land use issues. Uh, There's a development proposed. It was proposed by Haldeman County. Uh, prior to the election, the call of the election, and the mayor at the time, who was also chosen as the PC candidate by Doug Ford, um, he had proposed a 15,000 home development at Nanny Coke, the industrial park. And I don't believe anyone should live in an industrial park. So I largely campaigned on that idea. And we also know that the Ontario Federation of Agriculture especially has spoken out against the 319 plus acres of farmland and arable land we are losing uh, every single day in Ontario. It's unsustainable. I mean, our farmland, what we have is finite. It's non-renewable. And if the pandemic taught us one thing, it's that we want things made close to home and we want them made in Ontario. And I don't know about you, but if I were to choose one thing grown here in Ontario, it would be my food. I think the issue of, of land use, especially as we talk about this government's housing policies, it, it tends to get coded. And sometimes even in the work I've done about something that, you know, is like urbanists and, and city slickers care about. But uh, the Ontario Federation of Agriculture has been one of the most consistent voices, both uh, under this government and under its predecessors, in trying to really advocate for containing sprawl and preserving farmland. A number of the farm organizations have come forward. They are supporting my bill. I just uh, gave everyone a package today in the Ontario legislature outlining what my bill is all about. And in that package, there is a, you know, a section on letters of support. So OFA isn't the only organization, Christian farmers as well. But farmers are realizing that they, their pride is in growing food. And they're resilient. They are very good at adapting to challenges that are thrown their ways, Mother Mother Nature uh, being one, but also government interference. And But if we continue to take away the land that they can produce food on, uh, it makes it... Uh, you know, a challenge that will be very, very difficult to um, to meet. So they're speaking out as well, the farmers. Individual farmers have also penned letters, farm families, multi-generational farm families who have said, listen, uh, we take pride in growing food. That's what we want to do for the people of Ontario. And stop, stop coming to our door and asking us if we want to put houses on our land. So uh, your bill would ask the government to come up with a, a farmland preservation strategy. Do I have that right? So... 
My bill requires two things. Number one, it would require the Minister of Agriculture to prepare a kind of a, a report. Uh, she would go out there and she would consult with the people of Ontario, uh, you know, all stakeholders, and she would come back to the House with a report. And I believe that it, it's nine months after the bill receives royal assent that the minister would have to do that. Now, that's kind of a negotiating tool as well, right? If, if, if the minister didn't like that requirement, I would be willing to negotiate. But at the same time, it would be the minister's opportunity to go and say, hey, listen, this is what my ministry is doing. This is how much we care about Ontario's farmland. This is what I'm doing to protect it. Secondly, the bill calls for an advisory committee. And that advisory committee, I was very careful. I didn't want another government committee. So this committee would be made up of people who um, from Ontario who want to be on the committee. So if you are a developer, real estate agent, a farmer, um, you know, anybody, Joe Blow, who wants to sit on the committee can apply. So um, I'm very, very proud of the fact that, you know, I didn't stick with a standing committee at Queen's Park, that, that this would truly give the people of Ontario uh, a say in how they want Ontario's land used. I'm curious about the uh, timeline of when you started uh, developing this private member's bill. Where in the development of it uh, were you when the government's controversies around the green belt started uh, taking off? Yeah, so the, the bill, the idea of the bill really began when I ran because we had this issue in Haldeman, Norfolk. So my idea of protecting land really started then and there. I just had to wait for my ballot date. The media that we've seen with respect to, you know, Bill 23 and the Green Belt and everything else, um, you know, it's kind of added fuel to to my fire and obviously those who are, are helping me try and protect Ontario's farmland and arable land. What have you heard in terms of uh, feedback from uh, your constituents? My constituents are very appreciative. Um, first and foremost, it's because it's one of the issues that was front and center for them during the election. I'll be very honest with you. The people of my riding, they're they're unique. Uh, you know, they they chose an independent to represent them at Queens Park. So when when they uh, decide they're going to do something, they do it. And protecting farmland is near and dear to their heart because that's what they do for most of them. Do that for a living. They also see the idea where. Um, Development is going to pit farmer against farmer. So you have a farmer who, you know, is approached by a developer and the developer knocks on their door and offers them a few million dollars for a chunk of land and, and farmer B doesn't get that same offer. And they're very worried about, um, you know, the pitting of farmer against farmer. They saw that with wind turbines in our riding and they don't want to go through that again. Um, again, the pride they take in producing food as well. They believe that their job is to produce food not pave over the land that, that produces that food. So, you know, the people of my riding are very supportive of Bill 62. They're hoping that all parties do the right thing and they pass my legislation so that um, they can continue to do what they love and that's, that's produce the food for Ontarians. So we've talked a bit about the bill, but I, I did want to ask you about some of your experience of being an independent MPP. Uh, you are the only independent in the uh, uh, Queen's Park uh, in the legislature right now. There is, I, I guess, the benefit of, of actually being independent from the other parties and the, the drama that they can cause. Um, but there's also got to be challenges to being uh, on your own uh, effectively. Uh, what can you tell our listeners about that? So, yes, the, the, media also, the media often says to me, are you lonely? 
right? Being an independent, are you lonely? And no, I'm not lonely. I have lots of friends in all corners of the house and um, within the bureaucracy and support staff. So I'm not lonely. But you're right, it does pose some challenges. But I wouldn't change those challenges. I have members of different uh, parties who say to me, hey, Bobby, and what's it feel like to be able to say what you want, when you want, where you want? And I say to them, it's liberating. And I say, you know, if if you really wonder what it's like, you should probably give it a try. <laughs> if you have that will, then give it a try. And um, I think it's great. And the people of Haldeman Norfolk, they have really embraced the fact that I'm an independent. I mean, they chose me, but there was also this worry that maybe they'd say, oh, wait a minute here, you know, we made a mistake. And that's not the sentiment at all. Um, as each day passes, I feel that um, more and more people come on board because they see the benefits, um, issues that have not made it to the house in many years because, um, you know, the issue of towing party lines, there's many issues that have been swept under the rug and people are tired of it. And they love the fact that I can go to Queen's Park. And I think um, I counted it up. Uh, there's all things but two. Um, I spoke, I did a tribute to the Queen. And I also did a statement on turning on the lights at Simcoe Panorama in Norfolk County at Christmas. And I think everything else that I've spoken about in the house, I may have been told you can't talk about that, especially especially legal gun ownership. I went after that on uh, November 30th, and um, I would bet that I belong, if I belong to a party, there's not a chance that I would have been able to ask about legal gun ownership or at least uh, suggest that Canada's uh, gun policy is extremely flawed. I met an MPP in the halls at Queen's Park last time I was there, a uh, former municipal politician, I won't say from which municipality, mm -hmm. uh, but you know, municipalities are not partisan, and now they were part of a, a partisan uh, machine, and they were uh, telling me about how it was, you know, having to get used to the idea of, of sticking to the party line in, in, a, in a very literal way, and ha what a big change that was. Uh, you don't have to do that. <laughs> no, and so I guess that's the, where the challenge comes in, because anyone within the party system, uh, they get messaging handed to them, right? So they don't have to go out there and craft their own messaging on the issues of the day. Bobby Ann is an independent and her staff have to go out there and say, okay, let's look at this. Now, keep in mind, I am, I am a conservative. I, I spent 23 years working for the conservatives, but at the same time, I see things that are occurring that aren't very conservative. So I try and stick to my conservative roots when I am looking at my policy, when I am coming up with my messaging, but I'm also listening to my constituents in what's important to them. And sometimes, you know, they're swaying, you know, a little more from the right into the middle, you know, the, the, they see issues, um, they don't see them in left and right, they see them as how they benefit or impact the community. And that is a fantastic way of representing people, is them telling you what's important, telling you how to go represent them at Queen's Park instead of the other way around. And people keep saying to me, you know, I think there need to be more independence. And I think that, um, you know, what happened in Haldeman, Norfolk, it, it was a story and it, you know, it traveled the province and people were very upset about it. But at the same time, I come from an area where we believe in blessings and we believe in, in, in blessings in disguise. 
And I truly feel that um, what happened last spring was a blessing in disguise. You mentioned uh, you did work for the Conservatives, and uh, the writing is held federally by a Conservative. Uh, have the Progressive Conservatives asked you to uh, join their caucus? No, they have not. In fact, I've heard rumblings that they're, you know, they think I should be doing things a little differently. I should be um, working with them a little more closely. Um, but, but that's, you know, that's not for me to decide. Um, it's up to my constituents to decide that. And I'm asked the question all the time, right from the minute I was elected, um, you know, right until today, I'm continually asked that question, you know, whether I would um, go back to the PC home. And it's under conditions. First and foremost, they'd want to have to um, have me back. Uh, secondly, if they asked me, the house has to be clean. I can't walk through the front door to a messy house. And there's a lot of cleaning up that needs to be done. And parties can't continually take people, their vote and their money for granted. There used to be a way of doing things. When I started in politics, you know, over 23 years ago, the grassroots was consulted. And, you know, people would pick up the phone from the party or from Queen's Park and they'd call and they'd say, hey, what are you hearing on the ground? Can you tell us about this? Well, that doesn't happen anymore. And I tried the past, you know, the last years of working for MPP Barrett. I would call people and I'd say, well, don't you want to know about this? No, we're good. You know, how are you good? You're not the ones going into the coffee shops. You're not the ones going into our local grocery store. You're not even driving within 50 kilometers of our riding. So how do you know? You don't know the movers and shakers like, you know, we do. So we have to clean up that um, that disrespect. And then, of course, the last condition would be the people of Haldeman Norfolk would have to tell me that, you know, they want me to go sit as a conservative and abandon the independent rule. But right now, um, my constituents are not telling me that at all. MPP Bobby Ann Brady, uh, the independent MPP for Haldeman Norfolk, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. Thanks for having me. For almost 156 years, Ontario and Quebec have been the country's two most populous provinces, and their respective premiers have actually gotten along relatively well most of the time, even when Quebec has flirted with separation. Last week, the two provinces announced a new round of collaboration to strengthen language and cultural ties by financially supporting projects that promote economic development and education. Applications for funding are now being accepted, and last fiscal year, both governments allocated more than a half million dollars to 16 projects promoting the French language. Now, most of the time on this podcast, we're talking about programs that spend billions and billions of dollars, not less than a million, which is what we're talking about here. But we saw this announcement last week, and we thought it would give us a chance to walk down memory lane because for more than 50 years... Ontario and Quebec premiers have been very different people, but somehow they have almost always seen the value in promoting French language services together. It really started in the late 1960s when Ontario Premier John Robarts called the Confederation of Tomorrow Conference. It was at the top of the TD Centre, JMM. It was such a new building at the time, they hadn't even laid the carpet yet, and yet they had this really quite important conference of premiers there. All the premiers were invited to have a discussion about what Quebec wanted out of Confederation. It was a, a real watershed moment because Robarts was a unilingual Anglophone premier of Ontario, and yet he got along famously with Daniel Johnson Sr., who was the premier of Quebec. Uh, through the years, we have seen David Peterson and Bob Ray work on the Meech Lake and Charlottetown Accords with Robert Bourassa. Then Mike Harris and Lucien Bouchard tried to get more money for health care out of the feds. 
Dalton McGinty and Jean Charest signed an agreement to cooperate on transportation, health care, culture, tourism, environmental issues. And JMM, uh, why don't you pick up the story and talk to us about Kathleen Wynne and Philippe Couillard, who work together well as well. Uh, they did indeed. Uh, of course, uh, both uh, were liberal premiers, which helped. They had some common ground, and, and they uh, actually held joint cabinet meetings together. Uh, probably the biggest thing they did together was the uh, provinces, or at least in Ontario, the, the ill-fated cap-and-trade program, uh, which they joined with California to create a market for uh, pollution credits. Essentially, this was an attempt to uh, incentivize companies to to uh, clean up uh, climate-altering pollution, uh, pollute less, uh, and those that polluted more uh, had to uh, pay in order to do so. Those that uh, polluted less were rewarded for doing so. It was considered a successful program overall. It brought uh, billions into Ontario's Treasury, and uh, our listeners probably know how this story ends. It was one of the first things that uh, Doug Ford cancelled when he became Premier in 2018, calling it the cap-and-trade carbon tax. Indeed. But I note that Doug Ford and Quebec Premier Francois Legault have become sort of ideological soulmates themselves and good friends, uh, no doubt in part because of the COVID pandemic. Right. Uh, both worked together to create a, a common front of provinces to get uh, to get cash out of the federal government. Uh, they both uh, owned and ran uh, fairly large businesses before getting into politics. Uh, Ford, the uh, family uh, deco label business uh, in Etobicoke, uh, which has offices uh, both in Toronto and in Chicago. Uh, Legault co-founded Air Transat and turned it into uh, one of the largest airline companies in Canada. Bottom line, this new, relatively small, cooperation agreement between Ford and Legault continues perhaps the most important provincial relationship in our federation, namely between the premiers of Ontario and Quebec, and that's why we thought we'd talk about it on this week's podcast. Now, Steve, you did mention several premiers before in your uh, capsule history there, but one name was uh, shockingly absent, <laughs> that of Bill Davis. And I, I have to ask, are you okay? Are you feeling faint, Steve? Uh, no, no, I'm not faint. I just wanted to save the best for last. I'm glad you brought up Mr. Davis because uh, had you not, of course, I'd have been constitutionally obligated to do so at some point. Mr. Davis was a bit of an anomaly when it came to Ontario-Quebec relations. The current Prime Minister's father lobbied Mr. Davis hard to make Ontario officially bilingual, but Mr. Davis resisted doing that. He made French language services available, quote-unquote, where numbers warranted, and he made Ontario's justice system officially bilingual. Uh, but Mr. Davis's view was always going that final extra step and making Ontario officially bilingual would stir up a hornet's nest of anti-French rhetoric, and he didn't want to do that. Uh, I know two things. Quebec is certainly not officially bilingual either, and Ontario's French language policy is still essentially the same as it was in Bill Davis's day. We still in this province provide French language services where numbers warrant. Also, one other thing. For much of Mr. Davis's time in office, the separatist premier of Quebec, René Lévesque, was in power. So it was tricky trying to pass nation-building initiatives at the time. And in the lead-up to the Quebec referendum in 1980, Mr. Davis told me this story once. He loved telling the story. He went to Quebec and he gave a pro-federalism, anti-separatist speech, quote-unquote, right in René Lévesque's backyard, which he thought Mr. Lévesque would really dislike a lot. But a week later, the two men spoke, and Mr. Davis said, René, I hope you didn't mind my coming to Quebec and speaking against separation, to which Mr. Levesque responded, Bill, come back any time. After your speech, the forces for separation went up two points in the polls. <laughs> Interestingly enough, two men who couldn't have been politically more different actually liked each other personally quite a bit, and when Mr. Davis retired from politics in 1985, 
one of the first letters he got was from Mr. Levesque, congratulating him on his time in public life and wishing him well in his new life in the private sector. So there. One more short item. Just before we started recording this podcast, the news broke that the Ontario Court of Appeals has once again found that the Ford government's campaign spending laws are unconstitutional. Uh, These are the laws that uh, applied in the last election and uh, relative to the 2018 uh, laws, they substantially uh, limited the amount that third parties could spend in Ontario elections. Uh, Listeners may recall that this law was already found to breach the Charter right to free expression. The government reintroduced the law with the notwithstanding clause. Uh, Now, Ontario's highest court has found that the spending limits also violate Section 3 of the Charter, which protects the right to vote, but uh, crucially also can't be overridden with the notwithstanding clause. We're going to talk about this more next week, I imagine, but we didn't want anyone to think that we'd uh, miss the boat on that one. Good stuff. And that is the Unpoly Podcast for March 7th, 2023. Please remember to check out our newsletters. You can subscribe at tvo.org slash newsletters. This week, JMM and I riff on a little more about the Ontario Liberals' annual general meeting just completed this past weekend. Any feedback you have, we are always happy to hear it, good, bad, or indifferent. Write us an email at onpolitics at tvo.org. Here's an email from listener Joe who writes... Hi, love the On Poly podcast and just got into Nerds on Politics too. Steve mentioned in a recent episode that you've heard from the audience that the preferred running time for the podcast is about a half hour. I just wanted to echo that sentiment as well. For me, it's the ideal length for the show. Love it. Keep it up. Joe, thank you for that. We're grateful for the boost of support. Further evidence that uh, in our efforts to respect your time, we do try our best to stick to that half hour in length. So thank you for endorsing that. Also, some news to share from our colleagues over at The Thread with Nan Kiwanuka. They've officially released the first episode of their second season. Each month, The Thread speaks with Ontarians and experts about topics that are top of mind, whether it's carving out space and creating a community amidst hostile infrastructure, building relationships during late-night runs on the street of a big city, or finding a new path to friendship with the help of a medical professional. This past month's episode focuses on the impacts of loneliness and solutions to building better communities. You can watch The Thread's latest episode on tvo.org or on youtube.com forward slash at The Thread with Nam. This week's episode was produced and edited by Matthew O'Mara. Our managing editor is Shahiyar Tajvidi. Production support from Nikki Ashworth, Carla Lucetta, and Jonathan Hallowell. COVID is not over yet, people, so let's remember, as my dad likes to say, stay positive, test negative. Stay safe, Steve.